This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Mistletoe and Murder, where I detail crimes that occurred over the Christmas holiday season. This time, I'll tell you the story about a group of teens who went on a killing spree over three days and nights, beginning on Christmas Eve Day in 1992. This is a case that seemingly occurred for no real rhyme or reason. Some would call it a case of thrill killing. Others would point to juvenile delinquency, dysfunctional family issues, or just plain bad kids. The identified ringleader would fit none of these stereotypes, and yet made the decision to go on a murder spree that would shock his community and those who knew him as a good kid. This is Chapter 2, Marvellous Keen, The Christmas Murder Spree. On Christmas Eve, December 24, 1992, homicide detectives in Dayton, Ohio, were called away from their families in holiday were called away from their families and holiday festivities to a homicide scene at 517 Neal Avenue. When Detectives Doyle Burke, Wade and Tom Lawson, and Sergeant Larry Grossnickel arrived after 10 o'clock that evening, they found shell casings and a bloody crime scene left behind at a phone booth in front of a convenience store. The victim, 18-year-old Danita Gallette, had already been transported to Grandview Hospital. She had been shot five times, and would be pronounced dead when she arrived at the emergency room. Her shoes and jacket had been taken along with a backpack. It appeared to be a robbery turned deadly. Detectives didn't know it yet, but it would be the deadliest three days in Dayton's history, beginning that cold Christmas Eve. They also didn't know that Danita was not the first victim. Another murder had occurred earlier that day, but that crime would not be discovered until December 26th. The killing spree began with two teens, 19-year-old Marvellis Keene and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Laura Taylor. Marvellis had been hanging around downtown Dayton's Courthouse Square on Christmas Eve, December 24, 1992, and had been living on the streets and at a known teenage crash pad and cracked in near the center of the city. He'd connected with a group of runaways, throwaways, and rebellious teens who started calling themselves the Downtown Posse. They spent their days around Courthouse Square panhandling and their nights drinking and smoking crack or whatever drugs they could get a hold of. The crash pad was located at an apartment on Yuma Place. It was the residence of an older man named Bill who sold the teens drugs and allowed them to sleep there some nights before they left, once again to panhandle enough money to return and start the party all over again. Keen and Laura had connected two weeks before Christmas and had been together ever since, drinking and scoring drugs. Laura was a runaway who'd been expelled from school four months earlier. She was more street smart than her boyfriend and knew where to go to find drugs and a place to crash to get out of the cold. She would sell drugs or sex to get her next high. Keen was not an experienced street kid. Until a few weeks earlier, he had lived with his mother and stepfather, Bernice and Marvin Parker, in a nice middle-class neighborhood in Dayton. Marvellus Keene was born to Bernice and Maynard Keene on July 5, 1973. He had a brother two years his senior, named Maurice. On the day Marvellus was born, Maynard left his family of three, never to return. 
Bernice, left alone with two little boys, did her best to raise them right. She stressed the importance of education and took them to church regularly. The family attended Dayton Bethesda Temple, where Marvellis joined the youth group and sang in the choir. Bernice finally divorced Maynard in 1975, when it was clear her husband wasn't coming back. He subsequently moved to California, where he started another family. Bernice had married and divorced twice more, by the early 1980s. Marvellis, who'd never had his biological father in his life, quickly grew attached to his stepfather, Bernice's second husband, James Douglas. But Douglas would disappear on his family for months on end, before returning once again, only to abandon his young stepsons once more. The last time he left, he was gone for a year, before Bernice filed for divorce. Her third husband did stick around, but his presence brought chaos to the family rather than stability. He was a drinker, a gambler, and verbally and physically abusive to his wife and stepchildren. The marriage quickly crumbled, and once again, Marvellus was left without a father. Through it all, the two Keen brothers grew close and learned to depend on one another. Marvellus looked up to his older brother Maurice, who was his constant friend, protector, and one of the only people besides his mother and maternal grandmother whom he trusted. Maurice was outgoing and social, while his younger brother was quiet and more withdrawn. Bernice married for the last time to Marvin Parker before the boys were in their teens. They grew close to their stepfather, but by this time, the boys had reconnected with their biological father through phone calls and infrequent visits he made to Ohio. Maurice kept in touch more frequently with his biological father than did Marvellus, who had never really known him. Marvellus attended Meadowdale High School and made decent grades. He'd never been in any trouble and still attended church and worked a part-time job. He may have continued to live a typical life as a teenager in a working-class family if his older brother hadn't begun living a risky lifestyle, which soon caught up with him. On March 13, 1991, Maurice took part in an armed robbery. He and another man entered a known drug den, armed and intending to rob the occupants. A 27-year-old woman pulled a gun on the robbers, shooting Maurice three times, killing him. He was 19 years old. Marvellus became despondent and then angry over the death of his brother. He failed out of his last semester of high school. He was given a chance to finish his classwork and receive his diploma by attending summer school but left before finishing. Worried about her only surviving son, whom she called Dally, Bernice agreed when he told her he wanted to go to California to live with his biological father. Marvellus left in August 1991 to live with his dad for the first time in his life. By now, Maynard Keene was remarried and raising three young children. Things seemed to go well for Marvellus in California at first. He completed high school and got a job at an asbestos removal company. But soon after arriving, he experienced another loss. His maternal grandmother, Nellie Roberts, had passed away. It was yet another blow for the teen. A year after arriving in California, Maynard Keene decided to send his boy back to Ohio. He was having trouble financially, and while Marvellus was working, he had missed several car payments. Maynard was also frustrated by his son's lack of a social life. Marvellus had trouble making friends in California. Maynard was also angry at the high phone bills Marvellus was racking up, making calls home to Ohio. After a fight with his father, 
where Maynard called him lazy and spoiled, he returned to Ohio in August 1992. After returning to his mother's home, Marvellis secured a job at a nursing home. But his former friends noticed a change in the once quiet and polite boy. He was drinking, and when drunk, would rail angrily about his brother's death, vowing revenge. No one had been charged in his brother's shooting, as investigators determined it a case of self-defense, which infuriated Keene. He had also begun carrying guns and would show them off to his friends. In November, Keene quit his job at the nursing home over a dispute about his pay. Soon afterwards, he got into a fight with another guy at a bus stop. Keene won the fight, but later heard about someone threatening to shoot up his house in retaliation. On December 14th, Keene left his mother's home without explanation. It was at this time that he began spending his days in Courthouse Square, where he would connect with a ragtag group of teens. Just ten days later, his association with the group would lead to a shocking crime spree that would reverberate in the city of Dayton to this day. Marvellus Keene was now spending his days drinking and panhandling in downtown Dayton with his new girlfriend Laura Taylor, a 16-year-old runaway. They hung out with a group of teens and young adults, many of whom were ex-cons or juvenile delinquents. To fit in with this new crowd, Marvellus began going by the name Marvel and said he'd ran with the notorious street gang, the Crips, while living in California. He hinted that the reason for his return to Ohio was that he shot and possibly killed a rival gang member. This seemed believable to his new group of friends, since they knew he often carried a gun wherever he went. He dubbed his new gang the Downtown Posse. But the truth was, Keene had never been in trouble with the law, not so much as a traffic ticket. His father lived in Fullerton, California, located in mostly white suburban Orange County. Keene perhaps didn't know where he fit in. He'd moved to California with his father, who was white, but had been raised by his middle-class mother, who was black, and now was pretending to be a streetwise hoodlum with a group of kids who had come from much more underprivileged and chaotic backgrounds. So he created an identity in order to be accepted by his peers, escape from the pain that life had dealt him, or to fulfill his fantasies of revenge for the killing of his brother, or perhaps a combination of all three. Keene and Laura had spent two weeks together getting drunk and doing drugs. Together they had scrounged up enough money to spend a couple of nights in a cheap motel. But when the money ran out on December 23rd, they packed up their few belongings and headed to the gang's crash pad located on Yuma Place. Several other members of the downtown posse were regularly staying at the home as well. 20-year-old Heather Nicole Matthews had just been released from prison in October. She reconnected with Laura Taylor when they were both hanging out at Courthouse Square. She ended up at Yuma Place, where she would score crack cocaine. Her ex-boyfriend, Jeffrey Wright, age 28, also stayed at the apartment on occasion. Others who were staying at the home on the days leading up to Christmas were 17-year-old Demarcus Smith, who was there hiding out from police on a parole violation, Marvin Washington, age 18, who had just been released from a youth detention center, and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Wendy Cottrell. Wendy was three months pregnant and had run away from home after finding out about the pregnancy. Her family didn't approve of her dating African-American boys like Marvin and knew they wouldn't be happy to find out she was carrying his child. Nicholas Woodson, age 20, 
was also a frequent visitor to the apartment, but lived at home with his parents. On the afternoon of December 24th, Laura Taylor and Marvellis Keene were bored. Laura came up with the idea of robbing an acquaintance of hers. Joseph Wilkerson, aged 34, lived in a modest home on Prescott Avenue, but Laura said he had some money and probably some things they could steal. She and Keene came up with a plan to show up at his house and Laura would seduce him by offering to include him in an orgy. They enlisted Heather Matthews to join them in the robbery plot, and she agreed. After walking to Wilkerson's house, being invited inside and having a drink together, Taylor took Wilkerson to the bedroom. After a couple of minutes, Keene and Heather entered the room. Keene pulled a gun on the man, and Laura and Heather tied his hands to the bed with electrical cord. While Keene kept an eye on the victim, the girls ransacked the house for valuables, taking a microwave oven, a television, a cordless phone, curling iron, and blow dryer. They loaded the stolen items in Wilkerson's red Buick. Keene then found a Derringer, owned by Wilkerson, in the garage. He returned to the bound man, covered him with a blanket, and shot him in the chest. The girls returned to the room after hearing the gun go off. Wilkerson was still alive, his body shaking under the blanket. Keene then handed the gun to Laura, who tried to shoot the man a second time, but the gun jammed. Laura asked for Keene's twenty-five caliber automatic. He gave it to her, and she shot Wilkerson in the head once, killing him. As they returned to Yuma Place, Keene told the girls not to tell Wendy and Marvin what they had done. Wendy and Marvin were present at the apartment that afternoon and saw the trio unloading the stolen items. Later that evening, Keene and Laura went walking in the neighborhood, accompanied by Demarcus Smith. They were looking for someone to rob. 18-year-old Danita Gallette had just finished Christmas Eve dinner with her family when she decided to take a walk around the block to use the payphone. Danita was a student and the mother of a two-year-old daughter who provided for her child by working at a fast-food restaurant. One of eight siblings, Danita was close to her family. She and her daughter were living with one of her brothers and his family, and they'd all just spent Christmas Eve together when Danita excused herself for a few minutes to place her phone call. As Danita entered the phone booth, Smith and Keene approached her, guns drawn, and demanded that she remove her Fila athletic shoes and her red and black jacket. They then both shot the young mother. She was struck five times and was left bleeding on the ground. Besides the jacket and shoes, the group got away with Danita's backpack, which contained 50 cents. They returned to the apartment, where Laura bragged to Heather Matthews, We shot her. Yeah, we laid her out, DeMarcus added. The girls went through the dead girl's backpack and split up the items they found. DeMarcus put on Danita's shoes, and finding that they fit, kept them. Laura was wearing the stolen jacket. Around midnight, Heather's boyfriend, Jeff Wright, arrived at the apartment looking for her. The teens that hung out at the Yuma apartment often switched partners frequently. Couples would break off their relationship and begin dating each other's exes. This sometimes led to jealousy and fighting. Wright wasn't happy to return and find Heather cozying up with DeMarcus. He began fighting with her, dragging her by the hair to the bedroom. DeMarcus followed and pulled a gun on Wright. Wright fled, running down the stairs and out of the apartment. DeMarcus chased him into the field across the street, firing the twenty-five caliber weapon at him. Wright fell to the ground, and catching up to him, 
DeMarcus continued firing, emptying his weapon before turning around and returning to the apartment. Wright was shot four times in the legs, but was able to make it to a neighbor's house. He was rushed to emergency and treated for his wounds. After the shooting, DeMarcus left the apartment with Keene, Laura, and Heather in the stolen Buick. They picked up Nicholas Woodson, and together they all returned to the first victim's house. Christmas Day was just dawning as they entered Wilkerson's home. How long before a dead body starts to smell, Laura asked Keene, giggling at the thought. They had come to the house to hang out and party, and also to steal a second vehicle belonging to the dead man, a Pontiac Grand Am. They drove both cars back to Yuma Place. The group, minus Nicholas Woodson, who had been driven home, slept until the afternoon. In the early evening, Laura Taylor decided that the gang should rob her ex-boyfriend, Richmond Maddox. She called Maddox, who was spending Christmas nearby, at his parents' house. She said she wanted to see him and offered to go with him to a hotel so they could spend time together. She met him outside his family's house, and they began driving to the hotel with Maddox behind the wheel. On the way, he noticed a car that he thought was following them. Keene, Demarcus Smith, and Heather were indeed following behind in the Buick. At first, Laura told him it was just her cousins, making sure she got to the hotel safe. But after a few minutes, Maddox became suspicious and began to pull the car over to the side of the road. He saw the car behind slowing as well. Convinced now that they were being followed, Maddox hit the accelerator. At that same moment, Laura pulled out the Derringer and shot Maddox in the head. The car began to careen off the road. Laura opened the door and rolled out of the moving vehicle before it hit a tree. She ran off and was picked up in the Buick while people began to emerge from their homes after hearing the crash. Dayton detectives had only been home for a short time after working all night on the Danita Gallette homicide when they received a call about a car smashed into a tree on Benton Avenue. A young man had been discovered behind the wheel, dead from a bullet wound to the head just before 9 p.m. Christmas had just about drawn to a close, and investigators were working two homicides that had taken place in the city just hours apart. John Wilkerson's body lay just a few miles away in his home, still undiscovered. But the gang wasn't done with their crime spree. In the early morning hours of December 26th, they would be out looking for another victim. The gang had now killed three people and wounded one, but they weren't done yet. First, they drove to a bank ATM machine at 2 a.m. and waited for a customer to arrive that they could rob. After a long wait, a car finally drove up, but the driver most likely suspicious of the lone car idling in the parking lot drove off without exiting. That plan foiled, they began driving around the city looking for another victim. They spotted a woman, Kathy Henderson, outside of her car at a gas station, filling her tires with air. Pulling up beside her, Keen and Smith exited the car and pulled out their weapons. From behind the driver's wheel, Laura shouted, Shoot her! Henderson took off running before the men fired a shot. They got into her car, a black Dodge Shadow, and drove away, followed by Laura and Heather in the second car. They drove a few miles away before stopping to decide on their next move. The men wanted to rob a store for some quick cash. Laura said she knew the perfect place. There was a mini-market on West 5th Street, a small mom-and-pop place where she knew only one or two people worked at a time. 
It was isolated and would be an easy target, she said. The plan was for Laura to enter the store alone. Keen and Smith were to wait a few minutes, and if Laura didn't return immediately, it would be an all-clear signal for the men to enter and hold up the place. Heather was to remain behind the wheel as the getaway driver. Laura entered the store and picked out a couple of items totaling about 50 cents and went up to the counter where 38-year-old Sarah Abraham was working the register. Abraham, originally from Ethiopia, had moved to the States 15 years earlier, following her brother, after completing her college education. The family opened up the small neighborhood store with their savings, and they worked shifts of 12 to 15 hours a day to turn a profit. Abraham was the mother of three children. The youngest, her daughter Desta, who had come to the States with her, was only 11 years old. Her two oldest, in their teens, had remained in Ethiopia. Two other men were in the store, another employee, Jones Pettis, and a regular customer, 71-year-old Jimmy Thompson. Laura said she was a nickel short to complete her purchase. Hearing this, Thompson reached into his pocket and gave the young girl the five cents she needed. She thanked him. Just then, Keenan Smith entered the store. They pointed their guns at Sarah and told her to empty the register. She did, handing them all the cash that was in the drawer. $44. Keen then shot her twice, once in the face and once in the head, before fleeing the store. At the same time, Smith fired at the two men, hitting Jones Pettis in the stomach. The second bullet missed Jimmy Thompson. He slumped over the counter, pretending to be hit, and Smith exited the store. Pettis survived his wounds, and he and Thompson gave a description of the two shooters, as well as the car they had fled in the blue Pontiac Grand Am stolen from Wilkerson. Sarah Abraham would be rushed to emergency in critical condition. She was still alive, but would succumb to her injuries after five days. The death toll was now up to four. The four teens, Marvellus Keen, DeMarcus Smith, Laura Taylor, and Heather Matthews, were on a high after their deadly crime spree. While their stated motive was robbery, so far they had gotten away with very little of value. Less than $100 in cash, a few items from Wilkerson's home, and a pair of shoes was about all they had to show in exchange for the lives of four people. They knew that the cars they had stolen would have to be ditched soon before they were pulled over for driving a stolen vehicle. It was becoming clear that the motive was the thrill of killing alone, whether it was the murder of strangers or people they knew. Once they took their first life, it was as if they became addicted to the thrill and didn't want to stop. After shooting three more people at the convenience store, the group drove the blue car used in the holdup to a side street and removed its license plates, transferring them to the black Dodge Shadow they had stolen from Kathy Henderson. They drove to Nick Woodson's house in the Dodge and picked him up. While on the drive back to the Yuma Place apartment, they began to worry that too many people knew too much. They specifically named Wendy Cottrell and Marvin Washington. They began to convince themselves that the couple might snitch on them. Washington may have already told the cops that he'd shot Jeffrey Wright, Smith began to complain. We ought to unload a clip in Marvin, Smith told the gang. When they arrived back at the apartment, Wendy and Marvin were still there. The gang invited them to go on a booze run with them. They accepted, 
and Keen, Smith, Laura, Heather, Nicholas Woodson, Marvin, and Wendy all piled into the car. Keen was driving. They first went to a drive through liquor store, where they bought bottles of liquor and beer. They continued driving, passing the drinks around. Keen then decided to drive to the cemetery to visit his brother's grave. Afterwards, they continued to drink, and Keen drove further outside of town. Woodson had heard the gang talking about taking care of snitches and became nervous about what might happen next. He knew what the group was capable of. They had taken him to Wilkerson's house to party, and he had seen the man's dead body. He didn't want to be involved in murder, so he asked to be dropped off at his house, saying that he was tired and needed to go home. After dropping Woodson off, Keen continued driving around with the couple and his three accomplices. Laura whispered to Heather that they were going to kill Marvin Washington. Keen then drove towards a gravel quarry outside of town. After passing through the open gates towards the quarry, he told the group that he was going to pull over to relieve himself on the side of the road. Once the car stopped, Smith pulled out his gun and ordered Washington, who was sitting in the back seat with Wendy on his lap, out of the car. Keen then pulled Wendy out of the car by her hair. Washington, realizing what was happening, told Smith, We didn't go to the police. We didn't say anything. Wendy began pleading with Keen, saying, We didn't snitch. We didn't snitch. Keen replied, Shut up, bitch. They marched the couple down the dirt road and behind a mound of gravel. Smith then shot and killed Marvin Washington, and Keen killed Cottrell by shooting her in the head. They stole gold chains off their victims before returning to the car and driving away. Nick Woodson became even more unnerved after Keen dropped him off. He began fearing for his own life. If the gang thought Wendy and Marvin knew too much, and he was sure they were as good as dead, if not already murdered, what was keeping them from offing him, too? He had actual knowledge about the murder of Wilkerson. He'd seen the dead man himself. He finally decided that the only way to stay alive was to tell the cops what he knew. On the afternoon of December 26th, Woodson called the police. Detective Grossnickel took the call. Woodson told him he was in fear for his life from a group of acquaintances who had tried to enlist him to rob and kill people. He gave the detective details that confirmed some of the murders they'd been investigating for the last three days. Woodson was too scared to come into the police station to give a statement, but told the detective DeMarcus Smith's name. He only knew Heather Matthews' first name and did not know the names of the other two, but gave the detective descriptions of Marvellus Keene and Laura Taylor. He also described several cars they'd been driving in the past few days, a red Buick, a blue Grand Am, and a black Dodge Shadow. Then he told them about the dead body they could find in a home on Prescott Avenue. A unit was sent to Woodson's house to pick him up and bring him to the station for his protection. A bee on the lookout was put out with descriptions of the four suspects and the cars they may be driving. Officers were cautioned that they were most likely armed and should be considered dangerous. Just before 3 p.m. on December 26, Sergeant John Huber was driving in his police cruiser around northwest Dayton. He'd heard the Be on the Lookout announcement, and while patrolling his beat, he spotted the black Dodge Shadow. He turned his car around to get a closer look, and then noticed another vehicle parked close by, the Blue Grand Am. 
As he was punching the license plate number into his database, the Dodge took off. He gave chase, and when he'd almost caught up to it, a male exited the vehicle and ran. The car then sped off once again. Huber had called for backup, realizing that this was the suspect vehicle, and more units soon arrived, blocking the car in and forcing it to stop. More police vehicles arrived, and officers took cover behind their cars, guns drawn, calling for the vehicle's occupants to get out of the car with their hands up. Three individuals emerged, soon identified as Marvellus Keene, Laura Taylor, and Heather Matthews. It didn't take long for them to be identified as suspects in the rash of Christmas week crimes, including the three murders they knew about. Keene was wearing Danita Gallette's red and black jacket, and his gun was found under the seat. He was also in possession of Wendy Cottrell's gold necklace and Wilkerson's pocket knife. They also discovered that the man who had fled from the car was DeMarcus Smith. He had ran to the home of a friend, Sandra Pinson. When police arrived at Pinson's home, a young man emerged from upstairs. He wasn't wearing shoes or a shirt. He said his name was Dion and he was Pinson's son. But another man they questioned at the Pinson home said that the young man was not Dion, but was DeMarcus Smith. He was placed under arrest, and before they left the house, he was accompanied by an officer to his closet to grab clothes to put on for the trip downtown. In the closet, detectives found Danita Gallette's Fila athletic shoes. Pinson gave detectives information on the stolen car Keene had driven to her house. When they called it in, they found that it was registered to a Joseph W. Wilkerson who lived on Prescott Avenue. Upon arriving at Wilkerson's home, they found the place had been ransacked and Wilkerson lying dead in his bed. His arms had been tied, spread-eagled with his wrists bound to the bedposts. Blankets had been placed over him, and blood had soaked through. He had been shot twice, once in the face and once in the chest. It was clear he had been dead for some time. At the station, all four suspects were being interrogated separately. The oldest of the four, Marvellus Keene, was found to have no criminal record and answered detectives' questions truthfully, politely, and respectfully, adding no sir and yes sir to his answers. When confronted with each crime detectives suspected him of being involved in, Keene quickly confessed, giving details and admitting his guilt in the murders of Joseph Wilkerson, Danita Gallette, and Sarah Abraham. He was not yet questioned about the murders of Marvin Washington and Wendy Cottrell. Not yet. Their bodies had yet to be discovered. DeMarcus Smith also confessed to his part in the crime spree. He was responsible for shooting and wounding Jeffrey Wright, had been one of the shooters in the murder of Danita Gallette, had been an accomplice in the holdup of the convenience store where Sarah Abraham had been murdered, and admitted to shooting and wounding Jones Pettis. Heather Matthews had driven the getaway car and had been present during the murders of Joseph Wilkerson, Richmond Maddox, and Sarah Abraham, and the shooting and wounding of her boyfriend, Jeffrey Wright. The only one of the group to not have fired a weapon, Heather gave up the most details during her interview with detectives. But Laura Taylor, the youngest of the four, was the only one who refused to speak with detectives and immediately lawyered up. One of the detectives that interviewed her, Wade Lawson, said she was a, quote, cold-hearted girl. Besides Keene, Taylor was the only other person present for every one of the robberies and murders. She started the crime spree by suggesting to Keene that they rob Wilkerson. 
she had fired the fatal shot into their first victim's head. She alone had murdered Richmond Maddox and had proposed the place for the convenience store holdup, casing the place for Keenan Smith. Because of her age, and most likely her sex, civil rights activists called for Laura Taylor to be tried in juvenile court. She was then transferred to Dayton's Youth Detention Center. While there, she was counseled by Reverend William Head, an investigator for Dayton's branch of the NAACP. She soon made an admission to William Head. There were two more victims, she told him. Head then called Detective Doyle Burke to pass along the information about the murders of Wendy Cottrell and Marvin Washington. On the evening of December 27th, investigators traveled to the gravel quarry located south of Richley Avenue. There they found Wendy Cottrell's body. The 16-year-old had been shot twice, once in the face and once in the head. Her shoes had been taken along with her jewelry. A few feet away lay the body of Marvin Washington. He had been shot several times in his body and once in his head. Keene later confessed to the murder of the pregnant girl. Smith confessed to killing Washington. Laura Taylor had watched as Keene shot her friend, Wendy. Marvellis Keene was indicted on eight counts of aggravated murder, two counts each for Wilkerson, Washington, and Cottrell, and one count each for Gallette and Abraham. The charges were eligible for the death penalty for special circumstances, including aggravated robbery, aggravated burglary, escaping detection, witness murder, kidnapping, and the use of a firearm. Keene waived his right to a jury trial and was tried by a three-judge panel. He was found guilty on all counts. Prosecutors painted Keene as the ringleader, although homicide detectives believed that there was no ringleader and that each one of the members of the so-called gang played an equal part in the robberies and murders. If anything, they believed Laura Taylor had been the catalyst for the crime spree and had spurred on the other members, especially Keene, towards murder. Both Taylor and Demarcus Smith, juveniles at the time of their crimes, were ineligible for the death penalty due to their age. They both pled not guilty in juvenile court. Heather Matthews was indicted on two capital murder charges, but was granted a plea agreement in her exchange for the testimony against Keene and Taylor. She is serving a life sentence at the Ohio Reformatory for Women in Marysville. She won't be eligible for parole until 2132 or in 114 years. Laura Taylor also received a more than 100-year sentence and will not be eligible for parole until 2098. She is also at the Ohio Women's Reformatory in Marysville. Demarcus Smith is serving his life sentence at the Mansfield Correctional Institute and will not be eligible for parole until 2123. Marvellus Keene received a death sentence for his crimes. His defense team fought to give their client a chance to live his life behind bars rather than be executed by presenting a case for mitigating factors. They cited his extreme youth, just 19 at the time of the murders, as well as his immaturity. A psychologist diagnosed Keene with passive-aggressive personality disorder. He also said Keene was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of trauma including the loss of his brother and abandonment by his father. His defense also pointed out his lack of criminal history, his remorse, and that he fully confessed to his crimes. The court rejected the appeal of the sentence, stating that, quote, 
we find that several mitigating factors exist here, including Appellant's youth, clean record, mental disorders, his remorse and confession, and the repeated traumatic loss of father figures from his life. Yet we are faced with a defendant who murdered five people in three days. And while his family life has been troubled, he has also had the advantage of a hard-working, church-going mother and family. His mental disorders are entitled to some weight, but they did not substantially diminish his capacity to understand the criminality of his actions or to choose between right and wrong, unquote. He also cited that the strongest argument for death was the murders of Wendy Cottrell and Marvin Washington, who were killed to prevent them from testifying against him. For these reasons, the court decided that the aggravation outweighed the mitigation presented by Keene's defense. The sentence of death was upheld. In 2009, Keene had the opportunity to be interviewed by the parole board regarding his clemency hearing. He declined to attend. He directed his defense team not to present any evidence on his behalf at the hearing. He stated that he did not wish to cause any additional pain to his family or to the victim's families. Nevertheless, a report was entered on his behalf that showed he had not been a disciplinary problem during his 16 years in prison. He'd performed work assignments as a fast food service worker and a porter. He'd only had two minor infractions, including a report of playing his radio too loudly in 1994 and being in possession of minor contraband in 2006. Clemency was denied. Marvellis Keene was scheduled for execution on July 21, 2009. He did not request to meet with family members for a final visit, and none of his relatives attended the execution. Seven of his victims' family members traveled to the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility near Lucasville to be present as his death sentence was carried out. He did request a last meal, which was provided for him at 4 p.m. the day before his scheduled execution. He requested and was served a porterhouse steak cooked medium with A1 sauce, a pound of deep-fried jumbo shrimp, fries, onion rings, dinner rolls with strawberry preserves, two plums, a mango, a pound of white seedless grapes, two bottles of Pepsi, two bottles of A&W cream soda, and German chocolate cake. He was strapped to the lethal injection table, and the IV that would administer the deadly cocktail of chemicals into his bloodstream was inserted. Warden Philip E. Kearns placed a microphone to his mouth and asked if he'd like to make a final statement. Silent up to that moment, Keene simply responded, No, I have no words. He was pronounced dead at 10.36 a.m. He was 36 years old. The senselessness of these crimes is overshadowed only by the devastating wake left behind for the families of the victims. We often remember the names and details of these tragic crimes. Less often, we remember the victims. But least of all remembered, or even mentioned, are the heartbroken family members of the victims. As I end this episode, I must give thanks to the Dayton Daily News, and specifically reporter Mary McCarty, who wrote extensively and compassionately about the families of the victims who attended the trials, shared victim impact statements with the court, and banded together to help one another through their terrible loss. She provided information about who was left behind to mourn the six victims. These are just some of their names. Sarah Abraham's brothers, Sam, Solomon, and Michael Abraham, and her daughter, Desta. 
Wendy Cottrell's mother, Donna Cottrell, and her father and stepmother, Donnie and Rita Cottrell. Danita Gallette's mother, Helen Gallette, her father and stepmother, Mike and Connie Gallette, her sister, Rhonda Gallette, and Danita's daughter, Dominique. Richmond Maddox's parents, Eugene and Marceline Maddox, and his sister, Yolanda. Jones Pettis and Edward Jimmy Thompson, survivors of the mini-market shooting and friends of Sarah Abraham. Joseph Wilkerson's parents, Christine and Floyd Wilkerson, his brother Bill, and his daughters, Lorena Wilkerson and Deborah Oxendine. And finally, Marvellous Keene's mother, Bernice Parker, who now must mourn the death of both of her sons. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be most excellent to one another. Thank you.